12 of the Guns and Yoga podcast. My name is Wendy Hummel. We're mixing it up a little bit over the next several weeks, and instead of alternating Tactical Tip Tuesday, I'll be talking to fellow first responder podcasters during the month of June. Before launching this podcast in February, after years of thinking about it, I followed several law enforcement and other first responder related podcasts for years. As a newbie, I didn't know what to expect when I reached out to veteran podcasters like James Gearing of Behind the Shield and Garrett Teslaw of The Squad Room. What is so great about the wellness podcasting space is that those doing the work are so gracious, caring, and are truly called to serve. All responded to my cold emails right away and not only agreed to be on my show, but spent time talking to me about podcasting tips, recommendations, and advice. We're kicking off the series with James Gearing of Behind the Shield. I turn the tables on James and he gets to experience what it's like on the other side of the microphone. As you will hear, James is a rock star podcaster. He's released over 450 episodes. He speaks with so many amazing people and is passionate about providing a platform for first responders and members of the military to share their stories. James is the kind of guy you can't help but like, and he has a cool accent to boot. We covered a lot in our conversation, but some of the highlights were his friendship with Hollywood actor Josh Brolin, who is a former firefighter and star of the movie Only the Brave, which is a story based on a true story of 19 members of the Granite Mountain Hotshots who lost their lives in June of 2013 in Arizona's Yarnell Hill Fire. Josh wrote and read the prologue for James' book, One More Light life, death, and humanity through the eyes of a firefighter. We also talk about resilience and adaptability and how James pursued his lifelong dream of becoming a firefighter despite being told that he never would. The deconditioning of our first responders and the reason why many go up five belt sizes after five to 10 years on the job and how we can take personal responsibility, but also have organizations take responsibility for our health throughout the course of our career. The impact that shift work takes on our body and how we are unintentionally set up for failure. James is adamant that sleep hygiene is one of the biggest issues facing first responders and the fact that we don't provide our bodies and brains the time to rest, repair, and recover takes years off of our lives. We also discuss the identity crisis many first responders face, whether it's leaving the job through retirement, injury, or circumstances unforeseen and the importance of seeing the uniform as an avatar, not as what defines you. I hope you all enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed making it. One last thing before we start, if you enjoyed the episode, please share it, give us a review, and if you'd like to be notified of future episodes and want to receive our future newsletter, you can subscribe on our Podbean website. Welcome everyone to the Guns and Yoga podcast. Today's guest is James Gearing. If you don't yet know James, you're in for a treat. He is a rock star and a trailblazer in the arena of first responder well-being. He's a retired firefighter and paramedic, author, and podcaster. James served for 14 years as a firefighter and paramedic on both the East and West Coasts. He was inspired to start the Behind the Shield podcast in 2016 after experiencing personal loss of those he served alongside with. He is also the author of the book, One More Light, Life, Death, and Humanity Through the Eyes of a Firefighter. James, thank you so much for being on the show and thank you for your service. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm very excited. I love it when people... I love it when new podcasts are created out of all these, you know, missions that I see. I know Olivia talked about, you know, doing one, and I think the Guns and um, Yoga is a great title for yours too, by the way. But yeah, the more the more of these that are out there, the more opportunities there are for people to access things that are going to change their life. So I I commend you on starting this one. Well, thank you, and I can't take the credit for the name. It's my husband. He uh, he's a Guns and Roses fan, and he just kind of thought it was appropriate, but. But I think it's catchy too. So absolutely. <laughs> and really, I want to thank you. And if there's a few others out there. Um, I've been listening to your podcast and uh, just inspired by people like you because it's something I've wanted to do for a while, but finally just got it going a few months ago. 
Beautiful. Yeah. And I think it's such a great medium because there's no filter and, you know, either being told you can or can't say anything or up till somewhat recently, people had to vie to be on, you know, a TV show or mm -hmm. a news, you know, which never really gave anyone enough time to actually unfold a story properly. So I've loved this medium now for probably about seven years. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's great. And we're going to talk about your podcast. But when I usually start out interviewing people, I think you're similar from what I've heard of your interviews, I like to kind of start at the beginning. Um, so first, if you would not mind, obviously, people can tell you have an accent, but if you could share for us, first of all, where you live, and then maybe a little bit about your background, where you're from, and, and we'll just go from there. Absolutely. Well, now I'm based in Ocala, Florida, which is about an hour north of Orlando. Pretty, pretty awesome little town. A lot of people drive by it, which is perfect. <laughs> but um, yeah, there's there's a lot of hidden gems here, um, and it's it's kind of the the hub, I think, of Central Florida because we got Orlando, like I said, an hour north, Tampa, an hour west, and then Jacksonville, a couple of hours north of us, and then Gainesville is only thirty minutes. So it's a pretty nice place. You know, the the countryside starts to get a little bit more hilly as you get up here there's a lot of horse farms so um a beautiful place for a first responder to kind of decompress after working in you know, mostly urban setting which is my career um as far as background i'm actually an english farm boy i grew up in a place called bath which is uh near stonehenge in the uk um, one of five kids. My dad was a veterinary surgeon. My mom was originally a teacher, but she ended up being, you know, part of the practice with my dad for a long, long time. Um, and so had a had a amazing childhood. A couple of, I guess it could be labeled as traumas. Uh, we were almost killed in the house fire. That's probably <laughs> probably would would uh, would register as one. But it wasn't anything that I really felt weighed that heavily but when I wrote the book it actually came out of my memory again I'd forgotten about it for years which is you know interesting now looking back um but a very very good upbringing we we had to, this farm to play on we grew up around my dad healing animals we had all walks of life walk through the door from from literally you know people that were homeless through to members of the extended royal family and we got a very um subconscious lesson in humanity meaning there are good people and there are not good people and their wealth and their background and their profession has nothing to do with it it's just if they're if they're good or not and that that i definitely carried forward so yeah pretty pretty lucky when i look back and in, in how i was raised and i think that's a big part of what i'm doing now some people have these like just heartbreaking stories and so for me if you don't and you know you're fortunate or you're in a good place now then the other side of the coin is that we create an environment to help those people that are struggling at the moment so that's kind of what really drove me into the fire service and ultimately to do this well it's interesting you say that until you started writing the book you didn't really remember the details of of what you just talked about so let's i was going to ask you about that anyway but um, and I have made my way through most of your book on Audible. So if you could just share a little bit about that, because I think it's an amazing story. And I think it's interesting that you haven't noticed the connection between your career choice and that story until just recently. Yeah, so very long story short, I guess it's actually not a long story because it was probably a few minutes in reality. But um, my grandfather was making sausage and chips i think if i'm writing chips in england are french fries mm -hmm. and you know back then you didn't have the the chip pans you just had the the oil on the the stove and we'd asked if we could uh watch a little extra television before we ate so he thought he turned the chip pan down well he turned the chip pan up by mistake mm -hmm. so he was off in his study which is like the other side of the room um we're watching tv all of a sudden the the glass panels in the door explode and the smoke comes pouring out and mm -hmm. uh um so my sister was eight i was only four at the time and then my younger brother was one and a half and we were all in this room and so anna didn't know where where my granddad was so she went up in the house was frantic ended up trying to call my mum. um and this was the you know, old days so it wasn't cell phones it was just a regular phone no answer so she um oh she excuse me initially she tried to just open the door and the door 
wouldn't open. So then she ran trying to call for help, came back down, ended up just probably turning harder, pulling harder, and was able to get us out. And, you know, it was a pretty significant fire. It was a complete, you know, loss within the house itself. But, uh, yeah, so that had happened. And we actually had another near-death experience where we were um, at a place. We're on our way to see a place called Wookie Hole, which is a bunch of caves in the mm-hmm. in the UK. And I can still see it in my mind's eye now. We were just pulling away, and I looked up because there was a kind of crack noise, and there was a man digging his garden. And this, this garden was probably about, uh, I don't know, three stories up. So there's this big retaining wall and these giant stone blocks and something happened, some critical failure and this whole wall came flying down. My dad gunned it in his car and it crushed every single car, parked car that was behind us. So oh, wow. that we would have been killed. We were in one of those parking spaces literally 10 seconds before, five seconds. Um, so, so yeah, so when you look back now, you're like, okay, there, there was some, <laughs> there was some incidents, mm-hmm. but that got locked away. I mean, it wasn't like, it was traumatizing as far as, you know, anything. I mean, I did have night terrors when I was young. So, um, you know, now when you unwrap it, maybe that was kind of something to do with those things. But it just it just got put away. And when I sat down to write the book, the beginning of last year, it just popped up in my head. And it never really occurred to me that that was probably why, A, I've always been infatuated with fire, not in a pyromaniac way, but just... I love fire. I love the smell of fire, you know, apart from, you know, the some of the house fires and car fires, which are horrible. But mm-hmm. um, but yeah, that it drew me rather than away in a fear based um, reaction. It drew me towards um, probably you know, what I saw the men and women of the fire service then doing for my family. It kind of steered me in that same path. Yeah, that's that's amazing. So I, I recommend anybody listening, um, they need to either download your book or um, or get it. Cause the way that you tell the story, it's, it's, it's amazing. And it just demonstrates, I mean, you know, your, your sister, it sounds like she's, she was quite the hero in that case. And she kind of kept it all together for her younger siblings. Yeah, absolutely. And she was eight. That's yeah. crazy. And she's, she struggled with some things, you know, anxiety and, and a little bit of depression in, in her life. And I think that's absolutely, um, you know, because of that, because I mean, at four, you're just following, Mm-hmm. whoever the grown-up or older child is but at eight you're right at that age now and she had to be the one that was actually aware of what was really going on especially when she pulled that handle the first time I'm sure and that was a pretty terrifying moment for her so I think um yeah I mean she undoubtedly saved our lives but it definitely took its toll on her yeah I can imagine and so if you didn't quite make the connection between your career choice until last year what what made you decide to become a firefighter and how did you end up in the United States? Um, well, it's funny because I've wanted to be a fireman when I was a kid mm-hmm. and I forget which um, you know, academic year, but basically we had one of those school physicals and they broke out the color vision book and they were like, oh, you're, you're colorblind. You know, and that was the term then, colorblind, not there's varying degrees, it's like, you know, vision. But so they were like, all right, you can't be a fighter pilot or a pilot. You can't work as a firefighter and just discounted all these cool jobs and kind of crushed my dreams a little bit back then. Um, So even a friend of mine wanted to join the fire service. I helped him train physically um, and he never ended up. I don't know if he applied or not in the end, but he didn't he didn't become a fireman. But so I just discounted because you know, when a person in a white coat with a stethoscope tells you this is a thing, then you believe them as a child. Sure. Well, it's not a thing. <laughs> so don't believe, you know, question it. There's some very, very intelligent people in the medical community, but, um, you know, always always find a way around it. So I ended up getting into lifeguarding instead for a while and then found myself working in the stunt world. Um, and I was overseas in Japan and met an American girl who um, later became my son's mother. We're divorced now. but um, And so we moved to the U.S. after we got married. And I just had an aha moment. And the same way as I forgot about the house fire, I, I'm not the sharpest tool in the, books, the book uh, in the box, excuse me. So it took me a long time to figure this out. But I just had this moment, like, what, what are they talking about? You know, I can see colors. It's just not as clear as some people probably. You know, I can't tell some of the dark shades, but... I know what a red light, a green light, a you know, yellow light looks like. Um, so 
I went to there's a fire academy right down the street from where we moved to. And I said, I'm just going to I'm going to find a way around this. So when they pulled out the book, I'm like, look, I'm telling you now, I'm not going to be able to see some of these. But tell me anything in this room and I'll tell you the color of it. And that's basically what it was. They were like, all right. And they, you know, they asked me, I told them the right color and they were like, OK, that's good enough for me. Mm. And they signed me off. So I, there was definitely, a, you know, a higher power steering me to the American fire service. And there's a reason why I didn't become a firefighter younger. I don't think I would have been a good firefighter at 18. I was still physically very small and, um, you know, mentally maybe not ready yet. But um, the EMS side that we do here, the EMT and then paramedic, um, I, I love that combination of the two. So I was meant to come here. But yeah, it was a, it was a real kind of helter-skelter kind of journey because it was always what I wanted to do. So when to- someone told me I couldn't, I fumbled around careers for years trying to find the right career and then finally got back to the career that I think I was meant to do. Yeah, that's, you know, that that kind of re- reminds me a little bit of what happened to me. So as you can see, I'm wearing glasses. Um, nobody else can see that when they're listening to this, but I've always had pretty bad eyesight growing up. And when I, I knew I wanted to be a cop from the age of 12, and um, the first few jobs that I applied for, federal law enforcement, um, I couldn't get because they said my eyes were too bad. So like you, um, I was pretty devastated and thought that I was going to have to go a different route. I thought I was going to go to law school, which I really did not want to do, but I thought that's kind of where I was going to go. And then the stars aligned and was able to get a job and, and eventually end up having a career in law enforcement. But I can relate because I felt the exact same way. And I, I didn't end up really starting my career until I was a bit older. So, which like you said, actually ended up being a good thing because for me personally, uh, at 21, I don't know if I would have been, that would have been the right time for me to start a career in law enforcement. So instead about 29 or 30 was, was where I started. Yeah. And I went in at 27, I think it was, but I think it's important now for people to hear, like I'm waiting to put out an episode with a firefighter who's deaf and she's got Mm. the, um, cochlear implants so she can hear but on paper, she's deaf, but she found a way around it. There are policemen and firefighters or police officers and firefighters that are amputees, you know, military as well, that are back to full duty. So I think our generation when we were younger, or I'm a little bit older than you, but you know, back in the day. Um, <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it was just like, you can't. And what I love about I think like, CrossFit has a lot to do with this too. You know, obviously, mm-hmm. sadly, some of our veterans coming back and becoming you know, amputees, that adaptive athlete movement that's come out mm-hmm. of that. So the, the, the positive out of the tragedy is that there's a lot of incredible men and women I've had on the show who have just shown us all like, what are you talking about? It's not, I can't do this. It's just, I'm going to have to do it a different way. So, you know, now I think anyone listening, if it's, if you've been told you can't for a reason, mm-hmm. you know, if you have no arms and no legs, then yeah, it's going to be challenging being a you know, a working firefighter, you know, but you might be able to be in, in dispatch or just connected to it still if you've got the right software and that kind of thing. But aside from a very, very, very extreme um, you know, injury or, or congenital um, expression, so many people can engineer around some of the barriers and be incredible first mm-hmm. responders or, you know, any profession they want to get into. Yeah, and that's why I like listening to your podcast. I love hearing people's stories. Um, I I know somebody who's a deputy in the community that I work and live in, and he's got some blindness in one of his eyes, and so he was able to adapt and overcome. So I love hearing those stories of adaptability and resilience and and overcoming and pursuing your dreams. So yeah, absolutely. So, so, so let me ask you really quickly. I just I just listened to most of your most recent podcasts and you are at episode 457. That's a lot of podcasts. That is. Well, it started as once a week and honestly it's it's as someone said to me and I've I've kind of spoken about this in a couple other interviews, but it's it's very powerful, I think. They said, "Aren't you afraid you're going to worry, uh, excuse me, aren't you worried that you're going to run out of guests?" And the absolute converse happened. When I first reached out to a bunch of people, I got almost all yeses. And it blew me away. I'm like, well, that was like two months worth of, of um, interviews right off the bat when I started it. And some great people, Tim Kennedy and Sebastian Junger, and just everyone pretty much had wanted to get on for, for a burning reason, 
-hmm. said yes. Um, and it got to the point where really I didn't want to wait to put some of these interviews out. I knew they were going to help people, especially some of the, the really courageous mental health testimonies. And so I ended up going, okay, I'm going to put two out a week. And I was still on shift. Um, and that was, you know, that was a lot working 56 hour work weeks and, uh, you know, putting out these podcasts to, I think I was actually 48 at the time. They had a Kelly day with that one, but, um, it was, it was a, a low, definitely. Um, and then the beginning of last year, when this COVID thing started, you know, rearing its ugly head, I saw all the misinformation, which, you know, carried through for a full year you know of course this virus was real of course it was taking lives but there was no one talking about actually they were actually suppressing diet nutrition daylight mental practice sleep anything that you know and then tied into that is obviously suppressing the underlying health conditions that were causing a lot of these deaths and so they're standing up there saying oh we care about lives and it's like well you don't because you're not talking about anything else that's killing people you know, just hiding from this virus. So it pissed me off, for lack of a better word, to the point where I might, well, screw it. And I just transitioned out. I just retired. And so I'm, I'm going to put three out a week because I'm going to try and offset some of this horrendous, polarizing, toxic, you know, uh, reporting that we're seeing with people from the wellness space and that are, can say, yes, this is a thing. But here's how you can improve your sleep. Here's how you can improve your nutrition. Here's why vitamin D is important to your immune system and trying to bring good information in. So yeah, when you do three episodes a week, the numbers start clinking up quite a bit. So in four and a half years now, yeah, we're just over 450 episodes. Yeah, that's great. And I mentioned it because a part of me is just a little bit envious that you do that because actually like you, I was surprised when I started doing this. Um, Everyone that I asked except for one person turned me down. And what was I... her name? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know if I should say that right <laughs> no, you now. Shouldn't. I was just joking. <laughs> I know. You, you almost got me, though. Um, but, but really, the thing that I – and you and I talked about this before um, a couple weeks ago when we first connected. But the thing that I think is awesome about this wellness space and people who are really passionate about this topic, all the things that you just mentioned is everybody wants to talk to everybody. And when you find people that are like-minded, we want to share information and support each other. So if I did not have a full-time job, because I retired once and have a quote unquote retirement job, I would probably be, be putting more content out, but times just isn't on my side right now. Mm -hmm. um, but but yeah, I mean, just in the, the work that I do, I've come across so many great people and it's exciting and fun for me to, to share what they have to say and offer. Um, but you brought up um, Sebastian Younger and I was actually going to ask you about that because you mentioned that in the beginning of your book. I think it's in chapter one. You talk about his book, Tribe, and I actually even wrote down something that I wanted to make sure to say because I really liked how you put this. You are discussing in the first chapter the importance of tribe, and uh, you say that the haunting irony that so many live in a city of millions, and yet we feel so deeply lonely. And I don't know if you said that or he said that, but if you don't mind just transitioning a little bit into to what you meant in that beginning part of your book that kind of lays the foundation for, for what you talk about throughout. Yeah, I don't think that was a direct quote, but of course, you know, again, a lot of this is is influenced by. Sure. I mean, the tribal mentality is hands down. He was the mm -hmm. one that that opened the door in my mind for that. Um, but so, one thing that we're missing even more than ever at the moment is that human connection. Um, I think, you know, the the cell phone, for example, has has broken it down a little bit. If you look at the dynamics or law enforcement at the moment, I mean, I'm sure. Community and tribe is being challenged at the moment there, and it shouldn't be, but I'm sure it is. But, you know, humans are undoubtedly tribal species. And, and when you think of tribalism, a lot of people think of the negativity. Like mm -hmm. when I was young, there was tribalism in football teams and some fans were literally murdering each other, which that's not good tribalism. But that sense of belonging, I think on the plus side, you see in... Uh, Spartan races in CrossFit gyms in you know a lot of these these uh, jujitsu schools you know these places where people immerse themselves and and truly are in a, a smaller group that's uh, that's healing I mean it really is and you have that sense of purpose and I think that's what's been so sad recently as we've seen that 
that pigeonhole, that divide and conquer mentality where, well, you're a police officer. Well, you're black. So, you know, pick a side. Like, what are you talking about? Pick a side. You know, so the tribalism is, you know, the your own department, you know, the like I said, the the church that you go to, whatever it is. And as we lose that and as people are kind of being divided by a lot of this sensationalism, um, it's very, very detrimental to mental health. And people do feel alone. And when you feel alone, you're scared. When you're scared, you're angry. And when you're angry, you flare up over social media and you become even more pigeonholed and more siloed. So where I really saw this come into play was in the fire service, whether it was um, retirement, whether it was leaving the job because you got hurt, whether it was leaving the job because you got fired, whether it was promoting from a fire station to an office in headquarters, you know, losing that tribe, losing that group of men and women that you truly belong to, that you had purpose and you go out into the streets and make people's lives better. When people are taken from that in whatever capacity that is, is very, very detrimental. And sadly, I think that's why we saw a lot of the the suicides in the older generations. They either retired out, they promoted whatever it was. And that seemed to be when some, you know, a lot of them would struggle. We have young responders that do as well, but that's where it really seemed to manifest. And one of the key common denominators is they were plucked from their tribe. So they, as we said, may live in the middle of New York City, but what was once an FDNY firefighter that was in, you know, rescue whatever, now they they retired and they're sitting in an apartment in in Brooklyn somewhere, surrounded by all these people, but they could be heartbreakingly lonely. And I think that's a big thing. Tribal, you know, tribe isn't being surrounded by people, it's belonging to a group. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. And you know, it's funny, I just had a conversation yesterday with someone, he's a retired sergeant from the agency that I retired from. And we were talking about, he's actually a financial advisor. Now he's got a second career, and we're going to work on some training together for people who are not just looking to retire soon, but even uh, those that are in the academy to start planning financially. But but we were talking about people that we personally know who have retired and um, aren't doing so well necessarily. And a couple things, I think you hit the nail on the head and talking about that uh, sense of belonging, especially if we go from that to nothing. And then also, we don't talk about this a lot. And this is something I can say that I was personally guilty of is I think a lot of times we also over identify with our roles as first responders, and that can also cause some heartache. But I think it's really important to find some sort of a purpose and connection and, and figure out a way to, to stay connected in some way. Because I think there's a personal responsibility, but also agency-wide, I think that we should do more to support the people that, that move on from our careers so that they still feel a connection. Yeah, well, I think that identity is a huge part. And I, it's funny because what brings us into our professions is the real burning why. But as we start going in, I think a lot of us start identifying purely with the job. And so when people, I mean, it, luckily I got to make the decision myself when I transitioned out. And God, the universe gave me some some situations that made it very easy to say I'm not going back. Because the last place I worked mm -hmm. at, I didn't want to go back to. Um, but, you know, the, the bay door closes and say you've had a great career and, you know, you've, you've had a great crew and, and really enjoy working there. That last day, that bay door closes behind you. And I heard the same with the military. Once they hand in those those discharge papers, then that's it. You know, they were once SEAL Team 6, and now they can't even go back into that building. Um, so if you've identified as a SEAL, as a, as a cop, as a firefighter, um, and that's what you've hung on to, that, again, is incredibly jarring. But mm -hmm. as you said about transitioning to something else with a purpose, what drove you into to put in the application for that first department as you wanted to make the world better. And I believe that, you know, so many people in our professions genuinely do, which is why I think it's crazy that people that think that, that, you know, you would go through all that for the opportunity to, to abuse someone of color, for example, we know it happens, but that's a really, really long road to getting the opportunity when you could just join the clan or, you know, there's some, there's some express pass race, you know, 
paths to to being a horrible person. So, you know, I think that most of people that are in uniform are incredible people that want to make the world better. So when we get to the other side, it's understanding that that was always the purpose. You know, your uniform was just an avatar. This was a, this was a tool to make the world better. Well, then when you transition out, it's just simply saying, now what I, what can I do? What does that look like? The uniform didn't define me. I was always the human inside the uniform. So now, you know, am I going to start, um, you know, helping first responders with mindful practice and yoga or financial planning? Or am I going to start a nonprofit to help, you know, the burn injured or whatever it is? But if you can understand that your purpose never died, you know, you just simply took clothing off at the end of the day that you can carry on that path. I think that is the kind of message that we need to. But sadly, we don't. We we cast our retirees out and that's it. And that there isn't that off-ramp. You know, in CrossFit, they talk about on-ramp. When, when someone comes in, they teach them the basic movements. Well, there needs to be an off-ramp in the fire service and, and law enforcement to prepare not only financially and everything, but also mentally. Like give these men and women some counseling sessions i think that should be through a whole career but you know to prepare them for what it's going to be like and tell them look you're going to experience all these things it's normal because you just were part of something incredible and there's going to be almost like a mourning of the the profession that you were in but it doesn't end here you just got to find out what the next chapter in your life looks like with that same through line Yeah, it is like a grieving process. You're right. And, you know, one thing that I tell people when I talk about this to them is you can love your agency, but your agency is not going to love you back. The people, the relationships, the connections that you've made, absolutely. And that's really hard sometimes for people to grasp. And I've told this, this story before on a different interview, but Um, I teach at my agency and for other law enforcement across the state. And I had somebody with 40 years of experience in law enforcement. And we talked a little bit about this in a class I taught. And uh, he came to me on a break and said that he'd never heard this before. And it was very helpful because when he left his his job and he retired, uh, he was in a retirement job. That's what brought him to the training. But he struggled with um, his identity because he had identified with being in law enforcement for so many years, his neighbors, his church, people he went to church with knew him as, as the law enforcement guy who they could ask anything to. And that was gone. And he, he was really surprised and, and actually didn't really talk about it to anyone because was kind of probably embarrassed and felt a little bit of shame around feeling that way. So I think it's important, like people like you and others that talk about this, that this is real and it's normal. A lot of us feel this way, but let's figure out a way, like you said, to kind of redirect our original why as to why we even got into this line of work in the first place. Yeah, I think it's important as well. And this is something that I found for myself. Um, You know, you're a retired fighter, former firefighter. I I kind of agree with the Marine mentality. You're always going to be a police officer. You're always Mm -hmm. going to be a firefighter. Mm -hmm. You may not be professional, you know, wearing a uniform, being paid to do it. But, you know, I know that if something happened in your community, you would grab your weapon and you'd run towards gunfire, you know, on shift, off shift, whatever. If I'm anywhere here, I mean, even to the point where I carry a weapon, I'm not very good at it yet. I'm still on my journey there. But, you know, I I, I have medical equipment in my my car. I have Mm -hmm. things that I can protect people with in my car. Because once you're a sheepdog or, you know, whatever analogy you like to use, we always are. So it's not like you have to, I hear some people that literally don't don't want to relate to their former profession at all and each to their own. But I'm very proud of still being a firefighter. I'm just not paid to do it anymore. Yeah, I absolutely. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask you kind of shifting back to your book is you got, um, well, I guess, let me just ask you, how did you get Josh Brolin to do the prologue? Because when I heard that, I, I was, that that was emotional. That was really that was very impactful. So can you tell everybody a little bit about that? Yeah, and that's a beautiful story. But before I tell that story, the funny thing is, is that when I wrote the book and asked Josh to write the forward, he you know, he agreed to. But then I had that realization because he agreed to read the audio book forward as well. And I'm like, oh, I just realized I asked one of the greatest voices in Hollywood to be the first thing people hear on my audio book. Then my squeaky English voice has got to follow. So... <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> um, but no, it, it came from um, an incident that was then turned into a film that really became so, so 
powerful in my own life as well. So the Prescott 19 were the 19 wildland firefighters killed in Arizona, and they made a movie called Only the Brave. I had originally wanted to reach out to Brendan McDonough, who was the only guy that survived that because he was the lookout. So he was on a separate ridge watching you know, the overall fire conditions. Um, and uh, I didn't even realize that they had made this film. So as I'm reaching out to him, I'm like, yeah, we'd love to, but you have to do the press junket, which was very weird for a firefighter with a podcast in a bedroom to have to join Fox News or CNN or whoever, you know, whoever else was on that list. Um, but that's what happened. So I had to go through Sony and all that stuff and did an interview with, with um, Brendan and Patrick, who was another firefighter that helped um, with the film. Um, and I had Amanda Marsh on, who the, the Eric Marsh, who Josh plays in that film, Amanda, who's actually I'm talking to in about an hour's time, um, she's you know the real life widow. So that was an incredible insight. And then through that, I ended up meeting Josh because obviously he'd worked with Amanda to to learn about her husband and and try and become him on screen. Uh, and then so you probably have this. Sometimes you do an interview and it's just an interview, and it was an absolute pleasure. But there wasn't you know anything after that. These people, some of these people, have done so many of these. Other times you just click and it, the interview becomes a friendship. And that's what happened with Josh. The really powerful part of the story, and this is, you know, we, we, we speak down about Hollywood sometimes. Um, but I had a friend of mine, John Perez, who was terminally ill, had this rare um, autoimmune disease. And he was a squad guy. And we just lost just another another squad guy a couple of days ago, Eric Sienna from our department. Mm. Um and John, one of his, his kind of final wishes, as it were, was to see Only the Brave. And it hadn't quite come out yet. He was so frail, he couldn't go to a movie theater. And his wife, Rachel, said, James, is there any way you could help with this? So I reached out to Sony. And you know, without even thinking, they said, we're going to fly a copy of this movie from L.A. to Fort Lauderdale, have one of our people drive it up to his house, and they gave him a personal viewing. I don't think it was even in the movie theaters yet. And then, and John got to watch this movie with a whole bunch of his friends. And he ended up passing away. I think it was a couple of weeks later. But that story itself began with tragedy, losing all the the firefighters. But all the the incredible things that happened around that film, and you could tell that people behind it truly cared. Josh was a firefighter for three years himself, so he oh. understood exactly you know what was going on. He has a relationship with Amanda, like I said, the Sony, what they did for another firefighter. So I, that that movie will always have a very very special place in my heart. Yeah, you just gave me chills when you when you were telling that story, and I know you talk about that in your book too. Yeah. But yeah, incredible. And I'm sorry about the loss of your friend and. And I know you've had a lot of loss over the course of your career, which I know you talk about. And that not that kind of what, what led you to transition into all these things that we're talking about? I mean, it really is because I genuinely believe that most early deaths are preventable. Mm -hmm. There's the San Francisco earthquake. You know, no one knew it was coming. No one could tell if the bridge was going to collapse and crush a bunch of people or the one back in the, the end of the 18th century, or 1800s. Um, no one could tell that bricks and mortar on their own were going to collapse and kill a bunch of people. So those, mm -hmm. you know, the tsunami in Thailand, those are where deaths are, you know, a true natural disaster. Mm -hmm. But when you, in a career as a firefighter, see not only the people that you serve dying of obesity, of overdose, of, of mm -hmm. you know, car wrecks and all these things that were absolutely preventable, um, you know, had we had, for example, in the driving space, a driving test that actually is worthy of putting someone behind a, you know, a death trap and letting them interact with other death traps, you know, so that was the big thing. And then in the fire service, as I started becoming more educated, I had a background in exercise physiology and I, mm -hmm. as a coach and as an athlete, so not an expert, but someone at least understands that world. And I realized, you know, sleep deprivation is, is killing so many of our people. And, you know, that there was a huge mental health crisis going on. You know, cancer was killing so many of our men and women. Um, and some departments are hardly ever see fire. So this whole, oh, it's, you know, it's the toxins that we were exposed to. I'm like, no, it's not. The same way as the, the suicides aren't because of what we see on their own. There's a compounding factor of multiple, multiple things. So... 
when you when you go to you know six funerals in two years to the point where you can't stand the sound of bagpipes and you want to choke the piper um you know it's you either get angry and do nothing or you get angry and do something and that was Mm -hmm. it so the book the podcast they all came from all these people that get billions of dollars of tax money and their solution to the overall health of this nation is to tell them to wear a mask and that's it not address what we feed in our children in schools not get the fast food out and the sodas out not address the fact that we spray most of our food in chemicals and our livestock are in factories that you know they're on antibiotics to keep them alive long enough to slaughter i mean all these things that are absolutely you know preventable the the, the drug prohibition laws I and mean, they talk about that a lot with law enforcement as a firefighter most of the horrendous things i've seen have been in some way shape or form related to drug prohibition and or mental health but again the conversation you never hear so um we've tried the other ways we've tried the other ways with the way that we farm we try the other ways with the drug laws all these things and they've been an epic failure you know we have this horrendous violence on our street we have 70 percent overweight or obese in this country it's time for the voices from the wellness space to actually be heard and you know allow the the experts in those areas to to drive the needle and get the the safety and the health of this country back to where it needs to be so do i think that i can do that on my own absolutely not but if enough of us step up and do things like we're doing now and have these conversations eventually there'll be a critical mass where the people listening will be educated enough where they'll realize that you know that we could use that same money that we use now and literally change the world with some some key changes in the way we do things yep and i know you know, you've heard this before but what's predictable is preventable that's something um we really need to take to heart and i, I was going to ask you about this anyway but we're here now so i i like you i'm really uh, a believer that you know wellness isn't just one thing it's just not go go see a therapist there's i have a, a whole person approach to that and um but it is challenging to try to um talk to a culture that's that's not used to hearing that and um so let's you do talk about this in the book because um we all know both both you and i i think are aware that you know your nervous system and your immune system they're they're directly there's a direct link between the two and because our nervous systems are so highly activated all the time as first responders it really impacts our immunity and our health unless we're proactive about it and i don't i don't think we talk about it enough like you said visceral obesity obesity uh, metabolic syndrome our pre you know pre-diabetic hypertension and the fact that and i'm not sure what it is for the fire service but for law enforcement the average age of heart attack is 46.5 and um I think that we we personally need to do something about it, but organizationally, I think that we owe it to our people to really not just educate, but offer resources so that we can help kind of assist that that lifestyle choice because it is absolutely imperative. It's not just about um, here's some therapy. It needs to be we need to kind of step back and widen the lens a little bit and offer more than just that one component of wellness yeah well i think a a real lens to look at it through is you know we we obviously have depending on department there are some departments where you know law enforcement officers are definitely deconditioned and that's a thing you know and there's the donut Mm -hmm. jokes and you know Mm -hmm. we've all seen sadly some of the tragic officer involved shootings because physically that person isn't able to deal with whatever human they're trying to take into custody and so they end up going to to lethal force but what i what i always kind of bring people back to is think about the academy day one you know whether it's an orientation with the department whether it's even you know police academy chances are you're going to have a couple of people that maybe aren't quite as fit and kind of squeak through but overall you have a pretty fired up mentally and physically resilient men and women standing on that drill ground and so what I want people to ask themselves is, do we really think that after five, 10 years, people are like, ah, oh, I'm just going to give up now. I'm just going to get fat. 
I'm just going to, you know, start drinking because I feel like it. No, there's a reason mm-hmm. why these tactical athletes become 10, 15 years in the fire service and law enforcement have gone up, you know, 10 belt sizes and, you know, are, are winded climbing five sets of stairs. And, you know, it, it, it's a real thing. So m- the way I look at it, most departments really are setting our men and women up for failure. And it's not malicious. It's not coming from anywhere, you know, some someone planning the downfall of the, the responder. But the, many of these jobs have devolved from where they used to be. The fire, the fire department used to literally sit around waiting for a fire, which was few and far between in a lot of these smaller towns. And so there was a lot of downtime. So they were probably okay with, you know, being there one day out of every three, maybe running a fire a week. But fast forward to the modern fire service, you most urban departments, we're awake 24 hours straight every third day for 10, 20, 30 years. So understanding that environment is absolutely designed for us to fail. And that's sleep deprivation. I mean, I harp on about two or three things because one of the things I hate the most is people say, oh, but it's complicated. It's not complicated at all. There are a few core things that are killing so many people on this planet. And sleep deprivation in fire, police, dispatch, you know, um, medicine, you know, ERs and all that shift work is so, so bad for the human body. So we have to be there. We have to be awake. We have to be able to protect the community when everyone else is, is you know, safe in their homes. But there has to be this understanding that that's a completely different group than everyone else in the workforce. And for some reason, our professions tend to work longer hours than most people in the workforce. It should be completely opposite. So understanding, like you said, that hypervigilance, this constant sympathetic state that we're stuck in, we can't rest. We can't repair. We can't have that kind of brain bath that happens at night when people sleep to process trauma and everything else. So we are literally killing our first responders. I mean, every person from the sleep medicine world that's come on here has said exactly the same thing. So when we address that, I think is when we start making changes. Yeah, and you talk about in your book too, one thing that I wanna make sure you add to the list of the benefits of sleep is also um, injury prevention and recovery if you have if you are working out. So for those those that are trying to be proactive and eat right, and do workout, they need to sleep also so that they can reap the benefits of all the hard work that they're doing on these other areas. Yeah. And people say, oh, you know, I, I tend to get from the higher ranks. Oh, well, these guys, if we gave them more time off, they just work anyway, which take a step back. That's a horrible answer. But regardless, there is an element of ownership on both. The, the responder has to understand sleep hygiene when they get home. They have to understand that, yes, you do need to sleep. But yeah, one real snide comment that you hear a lot is, oh, it's always the fit guys that get hurt. Well, yeah, it is, and there's a reason for that. But they're not going to stop working out because of that. But if you don't give these men and women the time to recover, the same way as you would, you know, can you imagine asking one of your NBA stars to to not sleep every third day, how that would <laughs> affect their game? I mean, it would be horrendous, but that's exactly what we do for, for our people. So yeah, it, when people say to me, oh, but it's going to be too expensive, think about the money that you spend on the injuries, you know, the workman's comp claims, the medical disability, God forbid, the deaths, and then add in the cognitive side. These, you know, intersection wrecks where someone was micro-sleeping and then drives into a minivan full of kids or, you know, pulls their weapon when that kid genuinely was just reaching for his driving license and shoots a teenager. All that money that we pay on the back end from the ripple effect of sleep deprivation, we could save hand over fist by just training our people better, setting the hiring standards higher, which we need to do, but also rest and recovery. But it's that short-sighted budget year, I want to look good, let's get this Christmas bonus mentality versus let me invest in my people. And then you know I'm going to look like a rock star in 10 years because actually the department's going to save so much money because their workforce is physically and mentally resilient. Yeah, and... And we just, um, with our agency, we went and visited the Nashville Police Department's wellness unit. And you just made me think of something that one of their commanders said to us because we were so impressed at how much, how many people they had working in their wellness unit in varying degrees. And they said, we don't have unlimited resources, but 
our kind of our ethos or philosophy is that you can tell what's important to an agency by where they do put their resources. And I think that's just a great way to put it. But I have to say, too, I know there's an added layer to this issue about um, knowing what to do and not wanting your people to work too much. But right now, um, and we don't need to get too off on this tangent, but it's so hard to not only hire people or want to get people in this line of work, but also to keep them. So um, there's just there's just a lot of challenges, I think, that we face when it comes to all of that, too. Yeah. But if you're in the business world, so you work for Google or whoever, and people kept leaving, would you do the same thing? Yeah. No. You know what right. I mean? You'd pull in some expert probably that would charge you 100 grand to tell you, oh, by the way, your working conditions are crap. You know, and you could have figured it out for yourself and saved a hundred grand and maybe hired three police officers instead. But um, yeah, if you have a revolving door in your department and two departments ago that I worked for at the time, they did, you know, and where I live now for a long time, they were a stepping stone to other departments. Well, if people are constantly leaving, A, what a huge waste of money that you put people through all these, you know, hiring um you know, processes and then you lose them two three years later you might even put them through paramedic school and then they leave that's even more expensive mm-hmm. so take that same blooming money and invest in your people and i couldn't agree more with that if so many departments have next to no wellness people so that does speak volumes that shows you where your priorities are you know and i think that if you set the bar higher is how you attract more people mm-hmm. not lower this 18 and a heartbeat mentality i think creates a lot of these these uh, you know horrendous things that we do see on video. You know, I just saw one this morning of a police officer, or two of them, taken down. As soon as this guy gets down, he starts punching this dude in the head. Now you know I do martial arts myself, and you know mm-hmm. jujitsu is amazing. And when there's two of you, this one guy didn't see me putting up much of a fight. He definitely wasn't a big guy, and the one officer already had him kind of in you know was holding him. So it was just a case of so there's you know there's that that training area too so we hire the right people we keep them at a fitness standard it blows me away why in the fire and police we have so many problems enforcing an annual fitness standard that we have to stay by lifeguards have that standard you know the the the, the top tier military have that standard why is it the police and fire it's so hard for us to say hey can you pass this fitness test every year because it's kind of what we need to do so yeah, I mean, I think that that speaks volumes. If you look at your department and, and wellness and annual testing and all those things are at the bottom of the priority list, then you really need to to realize that right now you're basically saying that the health of your people is the least of your concerns. And that should be a big wake-up call. Yeah, and hopefully that's changing. I mean, I know with first responders in particular, we're really slow to adapt to change. We're usually behind the curve, but... I feel like we're at least headed in the right direction, but it's it's definitely slow, slow going for sure. Yeah. Well, people say, oh, you know, it's like it's like steering a ship. You know, you have to be patient. But why? Why do mm-hmm. I have to be patient? Why could we not say tomorrow we're going to start heading down and go back to the drug prohibition for a second? We're tired of our prisons being full of drug addicts. We're tired of our officers being murdered on the streets because of, you know, basically the ripple effect of gang activity. Um, we're tired of the gangs murdering the gangs. So we're going to start the process where we're going to make addicts medical patients. We're going to start funneling money of our tax dollars that were in the war on drugs. We're going to slam down on the dealers and the smugglers. But the addicts, they're going to start going through a mental health route instead. You could start that tomorrow. You could literally start that process tomorrow. But what is the most incapacitating, cowardly thing I hear is, oh, yeah, but it's complicated. It's not complicated. Hey, tomorrow we're going to start enforcing an annual fitness test. Now, it's not going to be punitive for the first two years, but it starts tomorrow. We're going to put this in place. And then if you haven't met the bar in two years, then there will be challenges. But in those first two years, we're going to have all these wellness opportunities to get you back to where you need to be. You know, but it's just it's it's cowardice, I think. I'm gonna you, play, you... Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I was going to say I'm going to play devil's advocate for a minute because I agree with you about the uh, the fit test. I think it's important to implement because I've had these conversations for a long time. <laughs> um, but 
there have been people and departments that have been sued by people um, when this sort of thing is implemented. So you can almost understand the reluctance on the part of the agency to, to try to do that. But I, I know there's a way that we that we can figure this out because I agree wholeheartedly. We need to we need to we need to have to have people held to a, a certain physical standard. Yeah, I think I, mean, I don't know, you know, particulars on, on the, the lawsuits. However, my thing is this. If you pull in a standard and it's like you have to be able to deadlift 400 pounds and you have to do, you know, overhead squats 10 times and, you know, climb this rope, it's not pertinent to what we do. But if you set up a circuit that's absolutely, you're carrying this ladder this this far, you're climbing this many stairs with the gear that you would actually take up any high-rise fire, you know, you're pulling this dummy that's the same as a, a human. You know, I mean, an average human in America is probably... 200 plus let's be honest um you're advancing this hose line that weighs the same as a hose you know just that you can't be sued because you're asking people to do the exact same thing that is in the job description but if you go outside that you're setting yourself up for failure but if a police officer can't pass a thing where there's a run there's climbing over you know whatever barriers there's you know it's pertinent to the job if you keep it within those parameters, how the hell can you be sued? I'm suing you because you asked me to do what's in my job description. That doesn't make any sense at all. So it sounds to me like people were probably going outside the parameters of job description, giving them a reason to to sue. But if you if you are if you're going to a lawyer because you're being asked to be in shape as a firefighter or a police officer, you should have handed your badge in a long time ago. It's as simple as that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think. And, and again, I don't know all of the particulars because I believe this has happened more than once, but I think it, it's, I think the lawsuit surrounds the fact that this was something that they didn't have to do before. And then it was added or implemented that there was this yearly fit test requirement. So, um, again, I, I, I'm with you on that. We just need to figure out a way to get there is, mm-hmm. is what we need to do. So I would go back to the academy then. Were you asked mm-hmm. to do it in the academy? Mm-hmm. Well, then again, you know. I mean, if a firefighter says, I'm going to sue you because I don't want to wear this this, this gear and fire is really hot and I don't like being above 37 degrees Celsius, then, you know, where do we draw the line of you just being, a, you know, pathetic and, and a liability in this profession? Yeah, no, I, I, I think that we can agree on that for sure, <laughs> definitely. Um, so, so James, a couple more things and then we can, we can wrap it up because I want to respect your time and I know you've got another interview to do, but... Um, one thing that you do address in your book, um, you talk about just uh, actually you start out by saying uh, or using a quote with, from Mother Teresa, if you want to change the world, go home and love your family. And then you go on to say um, that that's what has driven you to train diligently, exercise vigorously, read voraciously and rest intelligently. So I I want to make sure we touch upon family and relationships because I know you know this. Um, this is probably one of the things besides sleep. Um, one of the number one issues that I think a lot of first responders have in common is just um, not the greatest relationship with family, uh, not being able to communicate with with spouses and loved ones. So, so if you could just touch upon that. Yeah. Well, I think I mean you've got a you've got a couple of layers there again. Um, Family themselves, I mean, when, when we deconstruct what they do while we're away, it's amazing. I mean, I tell people, especially in the fire service, we're gone for 24 if we get mandatory, which is a lot. It's 48. Part of the time, your spouse is a single parent. Mm-hmm. It's basically what it is, you know. So they are amazing men and women to be, you know, fire or police spouses in the first place. And and children, too. I mean, you know, dad's not at those games watching them like, you know, the the others in the community that work nine to five. So there's, there's, a, there's a cost of service that the families make, which I think is so admirable and completely undervalued, I think, by most. But the other thing, again, is just this burnout, this, this fatigue. And I was just talking to a, a British firefighter I'm going to be getting on right mm-hmm. before we start recording. Um, and he is, you know, got divorced, and he was talking about how he saw himself changing like after the fact, retroactively, um, and so when, as we progress through our, our careers, you know, and you have, again, what we do, what we see, but also these shifts, we come home exhausted. And then, you know, the, the baby's handed to you the moment you walk through the door and both sides are right. Mother or father has been with that child for X amount of time. 
but the other person, you know, might have just had an infant death two hours before, you know. So, so what we're being asked to do as a family unit is is incredibly challenging. But then when we bring in the the ripple effects of what we you know endure in our profession, and especially again with the sleep deprivation, we're getting more and more and more tired. You know, some of our men and women are injured; they're in pain. Mm-hmm. They're on. You know, maybe they're they're offsetting that with with medication with alcohol whatever it is so we start changing as a person we're not as compassionate and kind as we were in the household or considerate and it's not coming from anywhere other than just complete exhaustion but that just creates this very very toxic environment and and you know some people deal with it well some people are able to offset and have healthy outlets as responders um and you know many people it it destroys i mean my I ended up being divorced. Um, I wouldn't say specifically that situation was um, because of the job, because there was you know other elements in that particular one. However, you know, then you have this other side of the coin where, God forbid, there is strain, stress, you know, infidelity, divorce. Then that's another thing compounded into the mental health of the responder too. So it kind of then feeds back your your family. My family, my second marriage was so healing. Like when I came back, it was incredible. My first marriage, when I came back, it compounded the stress. You know, mm-hmm. so you have that too. But again, by improving the wellness, holding that bar high, so our men and women are physically fit, um, putting mental health practices counseling whatever ingrained into the into the profession um giving our men and women time to sleep staffing your department so you're not mandatorying extra shifts that is only going to help on the relationship side as well but if we work and work and work our responders and then god forbid you have even you know greater pressures like the the political side that you guys are dealing with at the moment that's just destroying the family. So I don't, th- you know, I don't think of doom and gloom and the police and fire like, oh, you're you're a cop, yeah, you're going to be divorced. Mm-hmm. Like, no, but again, if you see that that's a, a theme, same as with the revolving door, you have to ask yourself, what is it about our environment that is creating so many um, relationship strains? And again, are we working our people to the point where? they're just not able to function as a, as a husband, as a dad. And you know, if that's the case, you know, I, I ask people, if, if they laid this all out on day one, would you apply for the job? Mm-hmm. It, you know, we're going to send you home. You're probably going to start drinking. Your relationship's going to be broken down. Yeah. You'd be like, no, this, this job sounds crap. But that's kind of what a lot of us find. So the human compassion side is to try and fix the obesity epidemic that we have within the our professions, the relationship issues, the mental health issues, because these men and women are leaving their families and going to comp- protect complete strangers. We owe it to them to make them as, you know, as physically fit, as well trained, and uh, get them back to their homes. And uh, what two, three days ago, we lost five cops in one day. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just it's completely unacceptable. Completely unacceptable. So. As citizens, we also have to demand things that are going to make our streets safer. And I think that, you know, what we have with our drug policy that came out of racism in the 30s, we have to address that because why why does Sweden and Norway and Finland not have drug wars, you know, these, these murderous events every day on their streets? Why are we not saying, what are you doing that we're not? How can we change? How can we learn? So, Well, and I think what you said about um, just starting starting from the very beginning of your career we need to start talking about all of these issues teaching the recruits this if you do this this and this you are going to not just short-term survive this career when you go out and fight a fire or go out on this call or work this shift but we're talking long-term survivability i know olivia from yffr she likes to talk about that's what a lot of the things that we teach in that class do but that's really what it's all about it's the end game it's living your life to the fullest. And then when you do retire, um, you're healthy. You're not 50 years old and falling apart, which quite honestly, unfortunately, we see way too much of. But but anyhow, 
Um, James, you, uh, we talked about so many different things and I probably have about 15 more things I want to talk to you about. So maybe I'm going to have to see if you'd be willing to come back because I know we're, I know we're out of time. So if there's anything else that you just kind of want to end with before we, before we call this a day, go for it. But I'm definitely going to include all the, the links to your book, your podcast, your website, all the things, um, even the movie that you mentioned, because I think that might be interesting for people to have. So any, any last thoughts? Um, yeah, I mean, the book book is on Amazon, the audiobook is on Audible, and I think all the, the I whatever tunes, I don't have Apple, so whatever those okay. people <laughs> go to. <laughs> um, but yeah, and then the Behind the Shield podcast, you can find everywhere too. But um, no, I mean, I, I just, I want to say thank you. I, I, it's nice when I get to be on the other side of the microphone. Um, I tend to ramble a little bit, which is why I think I like interviewing people because then I can just shut up and let them talk. But the more the more of these amazing humans I learn from, the more common denominators show themselves, the more the middle of that Venn diagram, you know, that overlap. Mm-hmm. And so I see this over and over and over again. So what I say to people is just start questioning what we were all mm-hmm. taught. Like my generation, we were taught that, you know, if you're if you're fit, then you need to eat bowls of pasta so you can fuel up and you know go to the <laughs> the gym and do the machines and you know and obviously now we know nutrition and fitness has changed incredibly well incredibly um especially in the tactical athlete space the bodybuilding mm-hmm. style of training is not good for functional fitness um when it comes to what we do so yeah t- just as a takeaway, just question what we've been told and then as you mentioned with the with the vision thing don't don't settle for what you've been told with your own health too you can reverse so much with diet and exercise you can heal so many injuries with mobility and yoga and foundation training and all these things so um that would be my takeaway just just start questioning it start researching and reverse engineering and you'll probably find yourself going down some rabbit holes that will take you to some pretty inspiring and optimistic paths yeah great that's great advice thank you so much james Thank you. It's been a pleasure. I'm looking forward to to doing it again soon. Great. Well, I'll hold you to that. (laughs) Please. (laughs) 